Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about great books. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Dr. Junius Johnson. And today we are talking about Julius Caesar, and we're doing it with a very special guest. Yes, we're doing it with Heidi White. Heidi is a teacher, editor, podcaster, and author. She's a co-host of the Close Reads podcast and author of the forthcoming book, The Divided Soul, Reuniting Duty and Desire in Literature and Life. That's going to be good. She serves on the board of directors of the Anselm Society in Colorado Springs and the academic advisory board for the Classical Learning Test. She's also an avid lover of Shakespeare and a good friend. Heidi, welcome and thanks for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. How are you guys doing? I'm excited. I can't wait to talk about some Shakespeare. Very excited. I think this is our first. No, we did Macbeth back in the day. So this is our second Shakespeare. Wow. I'm so excited. It's so hard to, you know, either do enough Shakespeare or keep from doing Shakespeare all the time, right? There's a tendency to just fall into one of those extremes. And this will be interesting too, because I think the next text we have up is uh, Marlowe. So Mm -hmm. we're going to be hanging out in Renaissance drama for a while. Oh, wow. A perfect combination. Yeah. So I think the first thing I'll kick us off here. Um, I, I, I want to start with a story about the first time I read Julius Caesar, because this was the first Shakespeare play I ever read. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I know, right? It's a classic first Shakespeare play for a sh- young child in public school. Um, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what happened was that I was in seventh grade and my teacher, my English teacher, she brought in um, boxes of books and she, she covered several long tables with all these books from her own collection. And the assignment was you had to, you could pick any book off the table and you had to read it and write a book report about it. And I think we maybe had to do two or three of them over the course of the semester. And so I'm going down this book and there's all kinds of stuff that I'm not interested in. And, um, and then I found, uh, this book and I had, I knew about Julius Caesar because we covered him in history. Um, I had actually seen the old Rex Harrison uh, Cleopatra movie, which I was really not old enough to have seen, but I saw it. Um, and actually it was, it was shown in my history class after I saw it as well. So, and I was a big Caesar guy, right? Everyone was like, oh, we hate Caesar. I'm like, I love Caesar, Caesar's great. Um, and so I saw this book and I was like, I've got to read it. So I took it up to check it out from her. And she goes, oh no, I didn't mean to put that in there you don't want to read that. That's, that's too old for you. And I was like, lady, you told me to pick a book. I picked a book. I'm reading this book. And she's like, no, she couldn't convince me. So she says, okay, fine. But if, if it gets to be too much, just bring it back and you can trade it out for something else. Well, at that point, there's no way I'm bringing it back. Right. I mean, stubbornness kicks in. So I, it's one of those, it's one of those old editions where you had the facing page where it glossed all the difficult words. And I started reading it and pretty much right off the bat, I thought this is amazing. I fell in love with the language. Um, I devoured it. I remember we went to visit my great aunt um, in another city and I took it with me and I got in trouble because I was reading it instead of talking to my relatives. I started speaking in Shakespearean English and I got in trouble at school for that. And they had, they told me to stop speaking in Shakespearean English because it was inappropriate for school. Um, And I've been, I've loved Shakespeare ever since. Wow. That's a great story. <laughs> That's fantastic. This is for me going back to where it all started. I mean, this that was back really, to your roots. Not even my first Shakespeare. When I think about it, but really my first great text great of, the, of, the, of the tradition. You know, so I mean, yeah, this is ground zero for me. This is really exciting. I'm going to read that as your teacher was just doing a total reverse psychology move on you. Like she knew <laughs> you were going to enjoy it. She just, I really <laughs> want that to be true. <laughs> I, I I do as well. Since we don't know any better, let's assume that's the case. So um, the first thing that struck me as a young reader reading this, and that strikes me again this, on this reading of it now as a, as a less young reader, is that um, 
Caesar is in the play surprisingly little, given that it's called Julius Caesar. Right. He doesn't right. have very many lines. It wouldn't be a great role to have if you are auditioning and you're thinking, I'm going to be a big star. I'm going to audition for Caesar. Don't do that, guys. It's a trap. That's not the role you want. You want Brutus maybe or, or Cassius or someone like that. Um, and I, I, I think I'll just I'll just throw that to you first for you guys to comment on before I say why I, if I say why I think that is. So Did you guys notice that too? Yes, for sure. And Shakespeare's relatively well known for this. His his history plays tend to have as the title the name of the ruler on the throne and the intrigue that takes place uh, amongst the characters who are looking to the ruler is the real action of the play, the real conflict of the play. And that's certainly the case in this one. Do you think that's um, a bit subversive on his part? Uh, I mean, he's uh, he's living under Elizabeth the first. Um, I'd not real, real up on his politics, but it, it does seem that one could take away from that the conclusion that what matters more is not who's on the throne, but everything else that's happening around them. Absolutely. I think that that's a, a, a safe bet. Is it subversive? You know what you just said about Shakespeare's politics. Nobody really knows his politics. Nobody really knows his religion, right? He has this yeah. really fantastic tendency to create these conflicts without taking a side on them, which is mm. remarkable, right? So you have just, I, when I, when I teach Shakespeare, especially the history plays, which are my favorite, mm. um, they, he has the, he presents these issues, these big, important human issues, right? Um, mm. Love and death and, uh, and, and power authority, these kinds of questions. He throws them in the middle of the ring and then he presents characters that represent points and counterpoints to, e to each side, right? So we've got Brutus on one side, we've got, right? Then we've got Cassius over here and we've got Mark Antony over here and they are, uh, they are the ones playing out the drama Mm -hmm. uh, on the stage and Shakespeare himself is is very he's he's not present in that yeah. um and you know there's that great story about uh Elizabeth the first when she was watching Richard Richard the second performing mm. before her and she stands up and storms out of the Globe Theater uh and and says no ye not I am Richard <laughs> because the play is about a monarch who's deposed yeah uh, and this yeah. was her fear right this fear of, of of no of succession of being intrigued against and so yes. Shakespeare surely knew that and and put his modern to him modern contemporary politics into the plays hidden beneath all of the intrigue that's taking place on stage for God's sake let us sit on the ground and tell sad stories, stories the death of the ah. yes it is it is interesting though i think you know i mean caesar in many ways haunts the play um he's he's i mean literally at times but <laughs> he's an ever present force even when he's not actually on stage which so my reading of that was that his greatness becomes a sort of mirror into which the other characters find themselves um so in many ways caesar's sort of the middle term that relates the various mm. characters to each other um, and in that way, I found it to be on this read. I, I had not noticed that the couple times I've read it before. I just found that to be a really interesting feature of it. Like, yeah, he's yeah. not on screen or he's not on on stage, but he's he's still moving the action, which maybe yeah. is a testimony to how just how great he is. I think that's right, and that, that's a reason I, I think why. I mean, what what Heidi was talking about, Shakespeare's shiftiness, right? You can't you can't point to anything in the play and then point to Shakespeare and say, "Look what he's doing, arrest him," um, which is a survival trait. You know, Elizabeth the first brings uh, she brings stability after a period of massive instability. You know, it's very important, um, but 
I think also part of what we're we're seeing there in as far as this goes is this sense of look, this is in the same way that we talk about the Victorian era or the Edwardian era, right? I mean, all these things that happen during a monarch's reign, they become attached to the monarch. And in a turn of phrase that Shakespeare is fond of using across his plays, the monarch can refer to themselves with the name of the country. We are England, speaking of himself, right? And so I, I think you get that same sense here. It's, it's Caesar is, Caesar flavors everything that's happening here. And every character in this play is obsessed with Caesar, um, some positively and some negatively. And that's kind of their problem is they're all trying to figure out who they are and, and really, you know, you kind of have to follow this all the way through to Antony and Cleopatra because that doesn't really end with the action of the play here. Mark Antony is still trying to figure out, Octavius is still trying to figure out who he is as the next Caesar, um, even after the action of this play concludes. Right. What is it about Caesar that's so great? Um, Caesar is, uh, this, this reminds me of, you know, Socrates, very famous uh, principle that the city is like the soul, right? Mm. Um, that that Caesar is representative uh, of, of, of Rome, but Rome is changing. Rome is dividing against itself. The old order has fallen away, but the new order has not yet begun. So Caesar uh, both catalyzes and represents this kind of liminal stage in the life of Rome. Uh, and uh, and and the vacuum that's created uh, at his assassination um, is uh, opens up Rome, the possibilities of Rome. Um, what could Rome be, right? And and what mm -hmm. what is it like? And, and also looking backwards, then what what is it that has led to this? The yeah. Roman Republic was idolized by its own people. They were so proud of it. And I just think of Augustine calling, you know, saying that Rome was plagued by the noble vices, the splendid vices, right? That that mm. look like virtues to the outside, but within is are, are truly the worst of vices. Yeah. Um, and their their pride, their vainglory, right? Um, and so that's what's taking place on the political level. Um, but then also within the soul, we have this amazing kind of allegory of, of, of rulership of, of, of the inner self as well. Um, and, and who gets to decide um, what, what, what a person, what, what the life of an individual and the life of a city should be. Um, and that, that, of course, is honed in uh, on, on Brutus, right, who is mm -hmm. a noble man, right, you know, um, but is he really? And I think that's really the main question of the play is less about Caesar and more about Brutus. But mm -hmm. Caesar, to your point, Wesley, is that he is the he's the magnet of that. He's the representative of that. He's the dividing line of mm. both the city and the soul. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and it's important to remember, you know, and Shakespeare knows his history. Um, this comes at, it's been a terrible couple of centuries for Rome. And let's say the last century has been pretty bad. They've had a couple of slave rebellions and they've had a civil war before Caesar's civil war with Pompey, which he's just finished. And Pompey was the incumbent. Pompey was in Rome and popular with everyone and he was the people's choice and whatnot. And Caesar was off in Gaul with the legions when all that broke out. And he sort of comes back as the invader um, and he comes out on top of all of that. And when he comes out on top of it, 
man, it's just like he he you know he hung the moon, and everyone's all in favor of him. But there's this large contingent of folks in the Senate who had who kind of gone all in on Pompey, and so they're concerned about what's going to happen to them in general. But also, there's just been an enormous amount of warfare here, and the people are ready to look for somebody who can bring stability to Rome. And I think what's key about all of that is that um, in that moment in their history, they become more interested in safety than they were in the Republic. And so they're they're primed for a change. They're ready for a change. And however much um, Brutus and Cassius and company may have struck a blow in favor of the Republic, the Republic was already dead. And mm -hmm. This is the end of it. I mean, we see at the triumvirate is not the Republic, and then the Empire begins after that. And so this is, you know, the last gasp of men who are looking backwards on these glory days, and especially for Brutus, Marcus Junius Brutus, by the way, My whose sister. ancestors uh, killed Tarquin, the last of the Roman kings, and founded the Republic. And so Brutus is just, he especially has got a responsibility in his own mind and in the minds of the other senators to safeguard the Republic, right? Um, and so, yeah, is he a nobleman and is he up to the task? Because he makes a pretty significant oversight in the way he carries through this whole project of removing Caesar and setting up a stabler Rome. And that's Mark Antony. Right. Well, and that question is intriguing to me. Brutus is, I, you know, does he steal the show? I don't know. There's so many compelling characters in this play, but he is the main character. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, I think everything you're saying on the political on the political stage, what I love about Shakespeare so much is that he never lets a play remain political, right? He always mm. makes it human. He always brings it down to uh, to the psychological level as well as the political level. And this play to me is so compelling in that way because I look at Brutus and you know opinion is divided on him um, as it should be. Uh, mm -hmm because he's ambiguous. Um, but I, if he was trying to be an honorable man, that's interesting to me, right? Yeah. But what's even more interesting to me is if he does have an ulterior motive, because how many times do we tell ourselves a story mm -hmm. of, how, of how we're doing something that we, that we have to do, right? Air quotes, mm -hmm. right? I have to do this for the greater good. But if it serves me, how do you know? How do you know where virtue ends and vice begins? Um, and, and, and I think that is so concentrated on Brutus in this play when you can look around at all, many of the other characters who, um, who have these Machiavellian characters. You can easily see how self-serving they are. Uh, Cash yeah. is a great example of that. But Brutus remains ambiguous throughout the whole play and seems deeply bewildered by the moral conflicts that are raised by the surrounding political situation. Yeah. Yeah. But that might be a good inroad into something and that uh, Father Wesley, I know you were concerned to talk about friendship in this play. Could you lead us into that a little bit? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we did Nick and McKee and ethics last and we were talking about what it means to be a good friend and how sometimes a good friend has to do things that are unpleasant for the good of the other person in the friendship. And uh, one line that Junius said that stuck out to me because my son and I were reading The Hobbit out loud was that sometimes you have to be like Bilbo taking the Arkenstone from Thorin to be a good friend. And <clears throat> I definitely think that's true. This is kind of the attitude that Brutus presents for himself, that he loves Caesar. And you know the only problem is that Caesar has developed this vice of ambition um, that is a problem. And so he has to cut him down, but it's better that he cut him down now than we'll kind of let him fall into this. 
And so the question is, is, is Brutus actually being a friend here or not? And I, I mean, I think Heidi's point about ulterior motives definitely came up to me more in this read than it has previously. Um, I think Mark Antony's speech does a good job of drawing out the potential ulterior motives there. But mm -hmm. it, it is an interesting question, especially in light of our previous discussion about friendship. Hmm. Yeah, and I'll just kind of add on to that, that, I mean, it's one of the passages we talked about in Nicomachean Ethics, of course, is when Aristotle asked the question, um, would a friend want a friend to become a god? Right. And there's this it's very complicated, very strange passage where the logic seems to be going in the direction of, you know, you want the best thing for the friend. And so you're thinking Aristotle is going to conclude, therefore, you would want the friend to become a god. But he concludes, therefore, as a friend, I should want my friend to remain as he is. Right. And you do you do see them wrestling with this, I think, fairly explicitly in the play, because you've got the part where Cassius talks about when he had to rescue Caesar from drowning. That's right. And then right before they kill him, Caesar goes on that rant about how he'll never change. He's mm -hmm. everyone else might change, but he's the sturdiest and uh, impassable, you know, figure. And uh, so there is there is kind of a development in Caesar that might not be for the best. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it, so it to me, there's this feeling of. So Aristotle seems to be on Brutus' side, that if you see your friend going, Caesar's on the way to becoming something no Roman ought to become, an, an absolute ruler, a tyrant in the non-pejorative sense of the word, um, because that's against the spirit of the Republic and the spirit of Roman citizenship and all of that. And so from Aristotle, from Nicomachean Ethics, Brutus has got a good argument that um, it would be his duty as a friend to shut his friend down. He's also got the argument again from Augustine, which of course Brutus doesn't know he's Augustine, but he's got that argument Heidi brought up earlier. Ambition is one of these splendid vices, right? And so it, it looks like great things are coming for Caesar, but they're going to destroy what's most important about Caesar. It's so better to cut him off. And I, it's almost like this principle and application of what Gregory of um, Nazianzus says about death, that death is a mercy because it puts an end to our ability to sin and store up wrath for ourselves. And Brutus makes that point that it's better if you if the longer you live, the the longer you fear death. Yeah, that's right. It's it is hard to make a case that the way that you best love your friend is to stab him to death right. <laughs> repeatedly right um i think his stronger argument is it's the best thing for rome mm -hmm. uh, that's much stronger um but i think brutus believes that he truly loves his friend mm -hmm. um and he is pitted at the beginning of the play shakespeare does such a masterful job in a literary sense through his conversation with cassius so that we can see how brutus is being manipulated by cassius who is a mm -hmm. machiavellian self-serving character mm -hmm. um, and brutus brutus's responses seem to indicate that he is he is not at least at that point but his reaction's so extreme that it it at every time I read it, it 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 makes me wonder where does his personal ambition where where does it begin? Right? At what point is it ignited, even hidden from himself? Mm -hmm. uh, if that's the case, where else he is, as Mark Antony so sarcastically says, an honorable man, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's what's really interesting about the play and why Brutus is so compelling on stage and why he uh, it, he 
he is the focal point because he is being bandied about um, by the characters on stage who know exactly what they're doing. Um, and, and he's unique in Shakespeare's canon in the sense that he is so easily, he's a, he's a protagonist who's easily manipulated, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And he changes his mind often. Um, yeah. and, and, and that is, so he's a very tragic character, I think, in the play. Yeah, and he changes his mind quickly. Yes. Because I almost wanted another scene between that first scene when Cassius is broaching the idea to him and the scene at his house when he seems to be engaged, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was a pretty quick switch. Um, I, I do think that's meant to speak to the depth of his love for Rome, um, mm -hmm. that his, his love of Caesar, whatever the duties of his love to Caesar might be, they would have to see to his love for Rome. I think that's that's clear there. But um, but yeah, he, it does feel, it's very hard not to make that feel like a swing uh, that, mm. that you, you think, gosh, Cassius didn't have to push you that hard to get you to, I have to murder my friend, you know? Right, why does he make the switch so easily? It has to be, in, but what, is it truly because he thinks he's doing the right thing, right? And that's where Shakespeare, shines as a you know a masterful author like he gives us this character who's completely believable i don't mm -hmm. think that that brutus fails as a literary character i think he's completely believable in his changeableness yeah. um but that quick shift does raise the question why like yeah. what is it is it truly love for rome which you can make the case that it was because to your point the roman virtues were pietas right Pi. Mm -hmm civic piety, Rome first above all. There's so many stories. I mean, just, I mean, they were overflowing with stories about uh, how Rome elevated family betrayal, right? This mother threw her son under the bus, you know, <laughs> Volumnia is telling Coriolanus not even to bother coming back. Like that, <laughs> the whole, the whole Roman ethos is Rome first yeah. at the cost of everything. And so you can make a compelling case throughout this entire play that is supported by the text that Brutus was doing was a completely honorable man, according to Roman virtue, or you can let him be a little bit more gray. <laughs> well, what's great about that is, uh, so that does bring the Republic onto the table, because essentially what you're describing is the stories that have been told to the guardians of the city to form them Mm -hmm. have been the stories that would cause them to sacrifice for the city over self. And then you, you say, yes, it's, you know, it's quite possible Brutus is an honorable man. And of course, that's the hilarious refrain that Mark Anthony keeps using in his funeral speech. He says it, I, I can eight or nine times, you know, I don't say, he, but Brutus is an honorable man, but Brutus is an honorable man, right? He, yeah, he's exactly what, uh, what you would expect from years of government training in Rome. And then there's this bit that Cassius says to him, one of the most famous lines in the play um, from, from Act 1, Scene 2, men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Right? Which, if we are underlings, it's not because some sort of cosmic destiny has forced us into this position. It's because we don't seize those moments when we could be the masters of our fates to make something more of ourselves. This is Cassius setting Brutus on, and so it's automatically suspect. But there is this sense of, uh, I, I think what's what I'm being made to think of by the, the points you guys are raising is how free is Brutus given the narrative that he's been raised in um, the way he's been taught to look at this, the lens he has to see things through, is this kind of a necessary conclusion for him when the syllogism comes into this form? Right. 
And I think you're right. I mean, this is, I love what Heidi's saying about Brutus's ambiguity. Um, I, I think it's a very good goal not to resolve Brutus's ambiguity um, because I think we all know that ambiguity in our own souls as well. When we look at the important decisions in our life or the difficult decisions or whatever that, uh, you know, we hope we're doing it for the right reason. I think the reality is probably that even when we do it for the right reason, we also do it for the wrong reason. Um, and so that ambiguity is something that's deeply human in a fallen world. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Can we talk about the plebs for a second? please. <laughs> I, I love them. So this time around, um, and I never had this thought before, um, but I suddenly realized what it is the plebes have been reminding me of all this time. So the plebes are the, the normal people in Rome. And so there's all these random people who come up. They're the guys who, um, you know, they, they kill the poet because he's got the wrong name. They, they, they get the wrong guy, um, it, which is hilarious because in Rome, they've only got like 20 first names anyway. Um, and so that's, that would be a common sort of thing. Um, and, and they're like, oh, we love Caesar. No, we hate Caesar. No, we love Caesar. Back and forth and back and forth. And, um, and, and of course, there's this brilliant, lots has been done and written about the, the way an orator can play a crowd from the scene of how Brutus gives his funeral oration and they're all for it. And then Antony comes back and has them ready to, he's got to hold them back so he can finish whipping them up into a furor before they go. And I finally figured out what it is that these guys in the play remind me of. Go it's, on. It's the duffel puds in the Voyage <laughs> of the Dawn Shredder, right? The guys are constantly, everything the chief says, like, that's right, chief. You said it, chief. Couldn't have said it better. And then, you know, Lucy says something and they agree with Lucy just as much. That there is it is. So great. I love it. That's perfect. Now I'm just always going to picture a little duffel putts yes. hopping around the <laughs> Roman <laughs> forum. <laughs> it's but hilarious because there's so much subtlety usually. You know, we're talking about how subtle Shakespeare is in his plays and whatever. He's chosen not to be subtle with the plebes at all. I mean, he hits you over the head with their fickleness. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think that that's super important to the play. Um, and is how easily influenced Rome is by their leaders. Uh, and that that's how Caesar has risen to power, yeah. right? Um, and it, it is unclear in the play how ambitious Caesar is. And it has to be unclear in the play how ambitious Caesar is. Um, I mean, we're told by Cassius, you know, I, three times I offered them the, uh, the crown and the lupercal. And he three times he refused it, right? Um, and, you know, that's a historical fact. And... But at the same time, he crossed the Rubicon, right? There's it, yeah. Caesar is enduringly ambiguous to us. We don't know what mm -hmm. to make of him. Um, and and there's that's so that the people then are these pawns that are played out and all of the all of the speech makers, all of the rhetoricians, right? They are making claims for the good of Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, but the plebeians, they don't like they don't really get a say they are they end up being pawns and i just see so much of machiavelli written all over like shakespeare keeps putting these which of course was a you know an anachronism to the romans but not to shakespeare <laughs> that's right uh, and uh so shakespeare puts the uh, the manipulation of the masses in the hands of his powerful people um all the time and if you are a uh, a playwright, how do you give them power? You give them power with words, yeah. right? 
Um, and so they, they, that's why we have these remarkable speeches. I mean, Mark Antony's speech is commonly mm. considered the great, one of the greatest speeches in the history of the English language. And it is um, because in order to manipulate the masses, you have to convince them, you have to persuade them. So that becomes another big theme of the play is persuasion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, at every level, down there's there's the persuasion of we start with the persuading of Brutus, yep. and then the in, in the central pieces you've got the persuading of the masses that both Brutus and Antony are warring over. But there's also you know the the more you look at it, the more layers you'll find of it. Is this even is Caesar's persuasion most obviously when Calpurnia is trying to convince him not to go, um, and 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 he and she she succeeds, and then he's easily overmastered, but also. Uh, you know what's happening in that rejecting of the crown we don't see it directly we have it told to us yes and we have it told with a slant and there's and the slant that's put on it is each time it was it's like he was more reluctant to reject it there's a sense that he does want it and we're meant to think oh is this some sort of is this a show he's gonna keep oh i don't want i don't want it yes finally reluctantly romans i will take up this and so this 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 persuasion it goes all the way through the whole thing so that this this whole play becomes a drama about rhetoric. Yes. They're even at the end trying to persuade people to help them kill themselves. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. Which suicide was, you know, it's not a Christian virtue <laughs> for no. sure, but it was a Roman one, right? Yeah. To even yeah. to sacrifice oneself to mm -hmm. to the Roman to the city, right? To the civil so the civil life uh, was considered, you know, the greatest sacrifice of all. Mm -hmm. um, and Shakespeare, of course, was not a Roman, but he was, you know, people debate his devotion, but he was firmly entrenched within a Christian society. Uh, so he's raising another complicated issue yeah. with with suicide. That's right. And and there and the the parallels between Rome and the British Empire at Shakespeare's time are not to be overlooked. I mean, this is this is an empire now. And if you look at Spencer, he refers to Queen Elizabeth as the Empress, mm. right? I mean, this is a this is a standard moniker for her. And so these are and it's an it's an empire that has come about from a monarchy after a period where there was kind of you know, after this Republican period and sort of reassertion of the rights of of the people and whatnot. And so there's a lot of parallels in the history of late Rome or Rome around the you know pre-Augustan Rome and uh, and what's happening in England. I think all of those things have to resonate um, with the with the original audience. Right. Um, there's some stuff here about, um, this is just a line that I don't really have anything to say about it, but I just like it and I just want to get in there. Um, Cassius has some really good lines and I like this one. This is in act one, scene three. He says, nor stony tower, nor walls of beaten brass, nor airless dungeon, nor strong links of iron can be retentive to the strength of spirit. Mm. This is the type of thing that gets thrown into Shakespeare a lot. It's very similar to Polonius's advice to Laertes. Uh, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Be to thine own self be true, and it must follow as day as night, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these characters keep saying these things in Shakespeare plays, and then the action of the play keeps proving that they're not exactly right about that. Right? right. And, and this is very much in line with the kind of uh, the, the optimism that you're seeing as the age of exploration is, is, you know, has been so, has broadened people's sense of the world and the, this explosion of the Renaissance and 
everything has made people feel like we can do it. We can do more. We can do more. And Shakespeare um, puts those words in there, but they're always the characters who say them usually end up dead by the end of the play. Right. Yeah, that's true. I think that in order for, he gives Cassius so many wonderful lines, like the mm -hmm. fault in our stars line. There's so many, he's, he's very stirring um, mm -hmm. and moving and even ennobling in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and he says that directly to Casca, like we have to get the noble Brutus on our side. And so in order to do that, he has to stir him to action, which is yeah. again, a very Roman thing to do. Right. Um, always, always action oriented there. They pride themselves. We weren't like the Greeks that just sit around and talk about stuff. We're actually out there doing stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so Cassius has these remarkable these remarkable speeches that are so stirring to the soul, but you have to. And I think that that goes to your point about the, um, that you made earlier, which was wonderful, that this is a play about rhetoric and the power of words to move the soul and to, and to, and to, and to bring action, right? To, to, to catalyze real action, meaningful mm -hmm. action in the world. Um, and the play so often, especially in acts one and two and three, um, a bring up the question of um that that socrates brings up about sophistry right like is mm -hmm. is it rhetoric enough rhetoric has to serve virtue or else it will serve vice yeah uh and and then the second half of the play acts four and five kind of show us the you know the the crater that's created by the action that was stirred by rhetoric and rhetoric cannot save them anymore acts four and five you don't get the stirring speeches some people don't even bother to read it because caesar died in act three right like it it's there's war there's but but it's so it it lacks the stirring language of the first half of the play which is not a flaw that's purposeful on shakespeare's fault because in the second half of the play no words can save them now mm -hmm. Like rhetoric is now we are past the point that rhetoric can 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 bring back the dead. Yeah. And yeah. rescue us from the plight that we have created. That's good. So <laughs> rhetoric rhetoric cannot get you all the way to resurrection. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. There's also it makes I was thinking about Caesar. You know, it's in, in, inevitable when you're talking about this play that you're thinking about history and the play together. Um, and it's important to make distinctions at times. Um, but I was thinking, I was wondering, because in the history, in the timeline that we inhabit, the what really justifies the focus on Caesar of later ages is the Act 4, Act 5, and Antony and Cleopatra stuff. It's everything that happens after his death. It is, like, like you said, the crater that his death leaves in Roman culture, leading to the Roman Empire and, and everything that that means going down the line. I wonder, I was asking myself, gosh, if, if they hadn't killed him, if he'd become king or whatever else, and they just sort of let that happen, would it actually have diminished his importance in history compared to what mm -hmm. it is now? Um, it's fascinating. It sure is. I mean, I, I, obviously, you know, we there's no way to know. Either way, he was going to change the world, which I tell yeah. my students all the time. Like, there's very few people who actually changed the world. There's people who impact the world, people who leave a legacy, people we still talk about, right? Um, but there's a handful of people whose lives really actually changed the trajectory of history. And Julius Caesar is surely one of them, no matter what happened, because mm -hmm. of, uh, and and not, not 
just because he was a remarkable person, he was, but because of the time and history that he inhabited um, and, and what was going on with, with Rome at the time. I do love that scene, um, speaking about words and, and how they can't be saved. <laughs> I think it, is it, it's scene five, or act five, scene one, where they have their parlay before the battle. Mm. And it's kind of, you read it, you're like, well, why are we even doing this? <laughs> words before blows, they say. And it's right. like, well, what's the point? Stop fighting, stop fighting. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going there to negotiate. Part of the the thing that was coming in my mind as well as as you you guys have been talking is um, it's fascinating that so much of this play about Caesar has got to do with rhetoric and the power of rhetoric to move things because we're talking about a man who in part ascended to power through his literary abilities. Mm. His war memoirs were vastly important in doing exactly this work of swinging public opinion around to his side. And a lot of people talk about the Gallic War as being propaganda sent home to shore up his political position back home, right? Um, and so that's, it's even historically, it's built into him that uh, rhetoric is, a, he's one of this great general, and yet rhetoric is so important to the way he negotiated the realm of his time. That's true. When I when I teach Julius Caesar in my, in my classes, we're concurrently reading The Republic every mm. time. And we always use him as an example of, of the education of the guardians, which is brought up in book two. Uh, yeah. Well, actually through the whole thing, but specifically there's a, a conversation between Socrates and Adiamantus when Socrates is telling him about the guardians, those who mm. protect the, gar- the boundaries of the city and what kind of education should they receive in order to fortify them for this most noble of tasks, right? Mm. Um, and, and it is, to have an education that uh, that is spirited and philosophical, yeah. right? educate their minds and their bodies, because only a unified soul can be worthy uh, to protect the city. Um, now, I always use Caesar as an example of this and bring up the question: Does it always work? Right? Mm. Did it work with Caesar? He had both, right? Um, what, what were the results of this education? He was a philosopher and um, a general. Um, he was a remarkable man, a brilliant mm. man, a genius. Um, you know, my favorite story about Caesar is him weeping at the age of 32 because he had not conquered the world. You know, Alexander the Great had conquered the world by the time he was my age. What have I done with my life? I am a failure. <laughs> um, and that... But he raises so many questions, such a dividing line even now, Mm -hmm. Um, because maybe Rome did need a strong leader. Maybe the Roman Republic experiment had failed. Um, And I I think coming out of the Catalinarian conspiracy and Sulla before that and the slave revolts, I mean, you've got to you got to take that question seriously. You know what Caesar lacks in the Guardian education? There's there's a key component that he didn't get, which is they're not supposed to even be able to be in the same house with gold or silver. That's right. Yeah, right? you got to keep them apart from re- from all of that wealth and resources and things. And Caesar's got well, all that in place. for them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But you know, they're going to argue. The argument will be Brutus's argument. But he gave his money away to the Romans, like it was for the common people. Yeah. yeah. Right. He gave it all away. He wasn't attached to it at all. Something that I did not realize. I don't know. I just miss stuff sometimes. Um, and I I learned it 
recently and then saw that the reference was right here in the play as well um where where they killed him <laughs> they killed him in the first permanent theater in rome the first stone they've been illegal before they were still illegal when the theater was built it was actually um claimed that it was a temple uh, a temple instead of a theater even though it had all the theater seats and everything in it and it was built by pompey he gave the money for it and, and it was called pompey's theater and so they killed him in the theater of the guy whom he had just defeated for as it were sole control sole influence over rome hmm. i don't know how i missed that when i was younger that's so great i love it so um, I, I have a question. I have a question. Uh, act four, you get this kind of interesting exchange between Cassius and Brutus where mm -hmm. their emotions towards each other clearly sour, but they have a kind of reconciliation. And of course, we find out why Brutus is in a bad mood. It's because his wife has died. But the there's a kind of visceral... Uh, antagonism directed at each other in that, and I'm wondering if if it can purely be explained by Brutus um, and and his personal situation, or if there there might be something more to it. Um, if there may be some sort of point about the nature of the conspiracy in which they have engaged, um, that while they put on a, a nice united front, if they had won the battle which of course is a counterfactual, but if they had, I mean, would they have been able to stay together? Mm. It seems like like the implication or the cratering that we we're talking about earlier might include even their bond as well. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but this is something that really stuck out to me as I was reading that scene. Oh, I really like that mm. question. It makes me, it, it brings us back to the question of friendship, right? Mm. Um, and you guys referenced ethics um, in which... Aristotle, which I don't know if that this would be on, have been on Shakespeare's mind, but this is a connection I'm making, right? Um, when when Aristotle says that there are those three levels of friendship, right? Like you meet a friend and you have something in common, you share a common interest. That's the first level. The second level is when you when you have a true affection for one another and want to know one another. For so the first level, you love something together. The second, you love each other. And the third is you love the good. You both love the good. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the truest and highest form of friendship. Um, and, and with that, you have all others. We have, mm -hmm. you have all other things. Um, and Brutus and Cassius don't, right? They, um, the nature of their bond was based on division, not mm. unity. Um, and so, of course, it falls apart because that's division is the the natural moral consequence to a first break, right? If the break yeah. gets wider, um, and Brutus, I think, is more um, like he seems so um, astonished at this, right? Mm -hmm. Cassius turns on him, he turns on Cassius, and Brutus seems like he doesn't know what to do with that. Um, because he has convinced himself he was trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas yeah. Cassius' argument is basically like, I'm better than you. Like, right? I'll not endure it. You forget yourself to hedge me in. Like, he's so accusatory. And Brutus is taken aback and then lashes out at him. And it's so characteristic of their two, uh, of, uh, of the two of them. They're psychologically compelling and consistent throughout the whole play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, in a sense, the friendship between Brutus and Cassius masquerades as that third type of friendship, right? We're both concerned with the good and we love the good, but it's not that because Cassius doesn't love the good. Cassius is, if we, if we may not know about uh, Brutus's ulterior motives, but I don't think there can be any doubt that Cassius has ulterior motives, right? And the, the clearest one we get in the play is, I don't like him being considered better than me, right? Where I, I, I have every much right as him. He's just a man like me. I don't like that he's above me, right? And so he's kind of a petty character in that sense. And so it looks like we've got this with this common love of the good. And then when you realize that's not the case, there's a kind of disenchantment on Brutus's part. Um, that friendship was always impossible in this in a sense that Brutus was not aware of because he because he bought Cassius's story at the beginning of the play. Yeah, I wonder if for Brutus, I, and I guess it goes back to how you assess the character. I mean, Cassius' sort of impropriety that is really what sets mm. Brutus off in their conversation. It, it either bothers him because Cassius, because Brutus really does believe that he's acting towards the good, or it's a reminder that there is this nagging ulterior motive. And and when Cassius mm. actually indulges in, in this kind of impropriety that it, it shines a light on the fact that maybe their no, their motives were not as pure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it's funny because Brutus does the same sort of immovability thing in that moment as Cassius is wanting him to, he wanted him to basically take a bribe. He does the same sort of Im, immo, immovability move, if you will, that Caesar made when they were asking about recalling the exiled relative, right? He's like, nope, Caesar, Caesar stands by justice. Caesar will never not do what's right. Caesar's a fixed star, right? And then they kill him. And that's the sort of gives them this pretext. And that's also a, a, the deeply, we haven't talked about that yet. That's one of the deepest ambiguities in the play is after all this talk about the good of Rome, the good of Rome, the actual moment of the assassination is focused on recall this exiled, this exiled person, right? Bring him back, pardon him. And and so it, it muddies the sense of what are we actually doing here in this assassination, right? It's not it's not clear because you're getting a different message at the moment of the assassination than what we had before. And then right. that gets echoed later with Brutus and, and Cassius where the, the roles are reversed. And Brutus, there's an argument if you want one for Brutus being a true lover of Caesar is that Brutus is actually an imitator of Caesar. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think he definitely considers himself a true lover of Caesar. And he seems to have a true affection for him mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and a real personal bond uh, that amongst leaders is rare, especially as we see the other characters, Cassius, Cascus, in it, like that, that are, that, that don't have that. Yeah. Um, and the bond between Caesar and, and Brutus is, is real and it's mm -hmm. affectionate. Um, and so, on the one hand, right, point, counterpoint, like on the one hand, <laughs> what a, what a, how much honor, how much love must Brutus have for his country to be willing to sacrifice his friend? This was a, a, the move of a true patriot, mm. right? Mm. Um, or on the other hand, like what the world's worst friend ever yeah. right? <laughs> for such a small thing. Yeah. Right? That didn't have to happen that way. There's no dire crisis, right? This is a preemptive strike, and that's very important to the play. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that on the one hand. I mean, so this this brings us to the single most famous line in the play and to Dante, right? Mm -hmm. At to Brute, 
then falls Caesar, right? If Brutus is also stabbing me, then what's the point in fighting to live anymore, right? And you almost get the feeling from that line that it's Brutus's betrayal more than Brutus's blade that does Caesar in, right? right. And Dante takes that and throws Brutus right in Satan's yeah, mouth. Yeah, so Junius, <laughs> tell us where Brutus is in the pit of hell. And <laughs> yeah, Brutus honor, right? Of being, he, Brutus and Judas are two of the three sinners, the three traitors being chewed by Satan in his mouth in the bottom pit of hell. No one is further down in hell than them except for Satan himself. And they get personal Satan torment in hell. I mean, it's it's a, a about as it's as bad a sentence as you can get. Right. right. The, the the pit of the betrayals, like the to betray yeah. Yeah. country and friend, is the worst sin. Yeah. Um, and Shakespeare does Brutus, I think, quite an honor to make him a tragic character yes. rather than a villain. It was a bold move on his part, um, mm -hmm. and you know he knew his Dante. Uh, and, and he gives us a softer Brutus, yeah. um, a more ambiguous Brutus, a, a Brutus whose motives are ambivalent. He doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be trying necessarily to just redeem him. Like this isn't like a, you know, a modern, you know, villain backstory that <laughs> uh, he's, but he honors his humanity yeah. um, and presents a Brutus that we can relate to so much so that most people read this play and find him to be the hero. Yes, yes, which is very strange to me. That like, I found that people were people tend to be pro Brutus rather than pro Caesar if yeah. you ask them about it. And to me, that was always very strange. Even though my name is Junius and not Julius, which people <laughs> often get wrong. I'm sure they do. Yeah. We'll start calling you Junius Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't get Caesared. That's, don't right. That's right. No, That's no, right. You, you better be careful. I'd like to yeah. see my kids grow up if you don't mind. Right. <laughs> Well, it does raise a question, though. So uh, obviously in the Roman mind, there's this civic ideal that we have to all strive for. And this has a way of making everything political. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're in a world in which perhaps our, our focus on virtue is not quite there, but we do have a f cultural fixation of making everything political. Mm -hmm. You often hear that everything is political. Yeah. Um, in a world where everything is political, is friendship really possible? Mm. Um, because, of course, Brutus has to eventually sacrifice the friendship for the greater good. The greater um, good. And you see this today, right? People are willing to sacrifice friendships for their sort of political ideals often. Yep. Maybe yep. they'll block someone on Facebook or they won't talk to that relative or they don't want to go to family Thanksgiving because crazy uncle so-and-so is going to start talking about whatever, right? So I, it's just, it's interesting. And I don't know really what the solution is in this context, but it, it does raise the question. Mm -hmm. Aristotle's kind of given us a way out, right? Because you know, if is true friendship possible when everything's political, uh, what is the good? Right. Because if you can both love the good, then you can be friends. And so the problem is that if you make everything political and you really mean that, then what you're going to do is you're going to take the that high ideal of the good that Plato had and that Aristotle to a serious extent shares, and you're going to domesticate it. You're going to now invest that in the political entity, the political body. And that is not a good that is high enough to ground real friendship, 
right? At best, because the political body itself is a transient ad hoc <laughs> approximation of something or other, at best, that's going to lower friendship to the level of mutual interest. Which was Rousseau, right? When we did right. uh, social contract. Yeah, exactly right. And so the question is, can you, only if you can find a good that transcends the political order, could you hope for friendships that are able to survive political difference? So this exact question, I really love this question, Father Wesley, because this is why I love Shakespeare so much and mm -hmm. why I love the history plays so much, because they take on these big political questions. Mm -hmm. um, but Shakespeare never lets every, anything remain political. It's always human. It's always embodied. Um, and it's always motivated by something human, right? Mm -hmm. Becomes in Shakespeare a question of virtue and vice, for sure, um, and a question of relationships, mm -hmm. right? I think um, about the English history plays are uh, full of these. Like, you never forget in Henry IV, part one, that we're not just talking about the uh, about Prince Hal uh, as a political figure, but as a young man torn between his friend and his father, yes. right? Yeah. Um, and Richard II, it's, it's Bolingbroke, his cousin, uh, mm -hmm. that he that he exiles and his uncle that he watches die callously and then steals his money like this is they are political moves but they're also so human um and relationally yeah. and communally embedded relationally embedded um and that is far more true than the isolation of political forces qua political forces right um yeah. And, and that's why I love Shakespeare so much and, mm -hmm. and why I particularly love the history plays is a very political play. Yeah. Um, but it is also always a human play, always. Yeah. And for Shakespeare, politics is human. And I think we should have that more. We should be reading Shakespeare more and, and remembering that more in these ideological conflicts and divides of our, of our age. Well, and the, what I love about the history plays as well uh, is that they're all tragedies. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> and and that and so then that draws a line to to the greatest of the tragedies, and most people's opinion, not mine. King Lear, <laughs> I'm a Hamlet guy, but in yeah. King Lear, it's a, it, it's the another top example of what you're saying right here. It's daughters, and this this family drama between fathers and daughters that's, right. that's played out over the politics of dividing the kingdom. And you know, which has never really worked out in all of Western history, but that that same drama played out again. And so there's this sense of, oh, gosh, okay, so we're going to draw history. We're not going to take sides. We're going to be, and we're going to get really psychological and human about it. And it keeps ending up in tragedy. Even Henry V, which has the happiest ending you could hope for in a play like that, it ends with a remark that Henry VI is going to lose everything that Henry V gained. Right? He's mm -hmm. he lost the kingdom. And so there's this. Um, I don't want to call it a pessimism about history because I don't think that's right. Um, but I think there's a soberness about yes. it um, yes. that you see in the histories that turns them in that direction a lot because you can't, when you're good, if you're going to get involved, I use the phrase, if you're going to get involved in the game of Thrones, right. Then there's the, the, the amount of collateral damage you're going to have to be okay with. If you're going to have a chance at coming out on top of it, um, it, it needs to raise deep and urgent human questions. That, yeah. that Shakespeare's continually raising. And Father Wesley, to your point about friendship, one of the questions in this place is friendship, right? What mm -hmm. is it? What is it? 
what does it look like to be a friend and a statesman? Is it possible, mm -hmm. right? And this is another question that Shakespeare's preoccupied with in his tragedies and in his history plays is, is it possible for a great leader to be a good man? Mm -hmm. And yeah. and vice versa. I mean, Henry the Henry the Sixth. I mean, his Henry the Sixth plays, which are you know decent plays, but not you know not Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, they're Shakespeare, but not Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. but he he seems he gives us a good man who's a terrible king. Yeah. Right. Um. And and then we have other plays in which there is a uh, a, a great king who's not a good man. Right. Um. And that and in this play we have a lot of both right um yeah. and i think that the that question becomes centered on caesar himself um and but but that's even more of a political political question it really is more about brutus is brutus uh he's obviously trying or at least telling himself he's a good man but uh, is, is his failure, is it a moral failure? Because the play seems to say the assassination was a failure. It shouldn't have happened, mm -hmm. right? I think that the play is pretty definitive on on, on that within the world of the play, yeah. um, that it has terrible consequences. Um, but the question for me seems to be with Brutus is, is his failure a moral failure or is it a strategic failure? Yeah. Like, did it fail because he just wasn't thinking right um, and made the wrong strategic decision or did it fail because he was, it was a moral, uh, he shouldn't have done it in a moral sense. And I think the play leaves that a bit ambiguous, which I, I like, it raises yeah. questions. Yeah, and, and that, that brings us to the last character we ought to have talked about. We need to talk about, which is Mark Antony. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it reminds me of, there's a, you know, with Cicero, not Caesar, Cicero was asked once when Octavius was coming up, someone said, what do you think about this young kid Octavius? To which Cicero respond, responded, susque deque, which is Latin for, you know, take it or leave it. He doesn't matter, right? He won't amount to anything. He's not important. And then, of course, Octavius ordered Cicero's death. Um, and so, and this is kind of the same thing, same thing here with Brutus and Antony, right? Antony's, Cassius is trying to tell him, Antony is an appendage of Caesar. If you kill Caesar and don't get him, it's that moment in Macbeth, right? If you don't get the sons, don't get both the sons, then you're you're creating a problem for later on. And Brutus is like, no, no, Antony's fine. You know what? Let's talk to him and we can bring him around and it's going to be cool. He's cool. Yeah. yeah. He'll, he'll, he'll get it, right? He's, he's cool. He's down. And then you see Antony in this crazy position of, in the moment of his grief, when he finds out, he's immediately in danger. And so this is the, because this is the other great friend in the play. And this is the friend who looks traditionally like a friend because he avenges the death of his friend, right? And he has got to pretend to go along with these guys to play it out long enough to see what's possible. And it, it's really not clear, even coming into his speech, his intention is I got to sound out the people. And if the people are on Brutus's side, then I can't do anything. Like I'm going to have to get out of here. Right. But if there are, well, just maybe, maybe something is possible. Um, I like the idea. You know, he's, he's like, I've got Caesar's will right here. So I don't, I, I would, I don't dare read it out to you. Oh, read it, read it, read it. What if, I mean, he just walks around carrying Caesar's will with him. Is that right. is that what we're thinking, right? Or is he, he just pulling he, a piece of paper? He found out of his it in his closet. Exactly yeah. right. You know, you haven't been anywhere, dude. Like seriously. Um, and I, I I love that that moment for me. Those first moments of danger for Mark Antony when he's got to try to figure out how to negotiate that. It speaks well to how good a politician he is. Yeah. But also, it, to me, it also raises those questions of friendship. Is does he have to betray his friendship? 
for a while in order to reach a place where he can actually act out of that friendship. Right. It's uh, it's Mark Antony is such an interesting character here um, because he's by far the greatest rhetorician on the mm. stage, like yeah. by a mile. I mean, so much so like his speech about when he points out uh, all of the holes in Caesar's garments where Caesar has been stabbed. That's yeah. like not even famous. And it's so good. It it's so good. It's brilliant. But then, I mean, it gets overshadowed by other by his other speech, right? His friend's mm -hmm. Roman countryman speech. Um, but he's, which Shakespeare, like how did Shakespeare even happen? <laughs> like how did that guy, he's so good, but like your point about Mark Antony is really compelling, especially because he continues in the next play when he totally derails on a strategic level. Yeah. Um, and, and Antony and Cleopatra, because he seems to me to be a man with this considerable, considerable ability, uh, but is entirely led by his appetites, right? He ends yeah. up being a man of the belly. Um, and, uh, uh, but a man of the belly with, with a golden tongue, which seems mm -hmm. super dangerous to me. Um, and we see that played out on stage. I was just going to grab this, uh, this quote from, from Anthony and Cleopatra about that. No, I'm sorry. Actually, it's from Troilus and Cassandra, isn't it? Um, it is. That's right. Where, um, Nestor says it. Um, so, so this is this is a no, no. Ulysses says this. So, so this is Odysseus speaking. But this, I think, could just describes Mark Anthony really well. He says, um, "Let me see where to start this." Um, okay. Um, if 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 basically, if you don't respect age and crowns and scepters and everything, right? What happens? Take what degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility, and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force should be right, or rather right and wrong, between whose endless jar justice resides, should lose their names, and so should justice too. Then everything includes itself in power, power unto will, will into appetite, and appetite and universal wolf, so doubly seconded with will and power, must make perforce and universal prey, mm. and last eats up himself. That's good, right? I mean That's that so you have that un when you're led by appetite. Ultimately, this is this is the Christian doctrine of sin. When you're led by appetite, the thing you succeed in destroying is yourself. Mm -hmm. Yep, and in this case, the entire Roman way of life. <laughs> yeah, right? also like. <laughs> yep, the city is like the soul. The soul is like the city. Like because yeah. these men are so led by their greed, by their uh by their lust, right? Like they're yeah. the, they're led by their bellies, and it causes the downfall of an entire civilization or a way of life. Yeah. Um, and a transition into a decadent um and declining mm -hmm. um way of life uh later on. Um and so that and that is, you know, that's the tragedy of Julius Caesar. Yeah, that's that's a and and a, and a steep warning for for us today as well. Amen. Mm -hmm. Well, was there any other 
were there any other topics that you feel like we need to cover here? I, you know, I, I, I wanted to just touch on the, uh, the conflict throughout the whole play, um, having to do with signs and visions and yeah. portents, right. Um, that this whole idea of fate versus free will, like what is brought about by the hand of man and what by the hand of the gods, um, is a major concern in all pagan writing for sure. Um, whether it's Greek or Roman um, or any other, right? That whole idea of fate versus free will is haunting to uh, to the Greek and Roman writers. Yeah. Um, and 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 Shakespeare seems to bring it up here too. It's a major concern of the play. Is it because of the portents? Um, and what happens if we defy them, right? And that's another concern that happens in Macbeth, which I know you just I defy uh, Audrey. Yes. Um, <laughs> like what? Uh, but the gods seem to be speaking through the skies to these people and um, and everything that the portents portend <laughs> happen, <laughs> but the people ignore them, right? So yeah. what is brought about by the hand of men? How much power do we have over our fates um, and the fate of nations? Like what is it that yeah. what is it that free will can do um, for evil as well as for good? Thank you for bringing that up because that was the one thing that I, the one note that I had left that we hadn't touched. Um, and I'll, I'll just add a couple of things and then read a passage. Um, that concern continues in medieval Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so you have, you know, Boethius in the Constellation of Philosophy is asking that question. And he gives us this synthesis of saying that, well, what people call fate here is divine providence looked at from the wrong side, right? Looked at from the bottom up. And so if you, that kind of resolves the thing. What that has the effect of giving uh, a lot of folks in the Middle Ages permission to continue with a sort of astrological determinism that Boethius would be as against as the book of James is. That's what the beginning of the book of James is about. If you look at that, that passage in Greek about the, you know, with whom there's no shadow of change, every word in that passage is a, is a term used in Greek for astrology. Mm -hmm. talking about the stars and conjunctions and waning and all this other kind of thing. And he's trying to say that unlike Venus and these other gods whose power is greater or less, depending on where their planet is in the heaven, our God isn't like that. His power is constant all the way through. And so, you know, as late as Chaucer, this is still a major discussion. And it's, it's an issue in the Knight's Tale and the Canterbury Tales where the, in, the issue of the thing seems to be determined by the stars. And of course, Chaucer translated the constellation of philosophy into Middle English. And so he was very familiar with that Boethius material. And then Chaucer's the greatest poet that Shakespeare's got to deal with in his language before he comes up, right? So there's a nice unbroken line there from the ancient world through the medievals to, to the Renaissance. A uh, second thing is, you know, within the, the Renaissance worldview, and this also is kind of a continuation of the medieval worldview, there's this sense that um, it's, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that God or the gods are trying to say something by the portents so much as if great things are going to happen, it's impossible that they not be reflected in the stars. And it's impossible that they not be accompanied by these other sorts of things. Anthony is, I mean, uh, Octavius is shocked in Anthony and Cleopatra when he finds out that Anthony is dead because there should have been some signs or something, right? Uh, uh, this, there should have been a greater crack. Um, and so it's more, it's, it's, even if it's not about determinancy, there is the question of correspondence, which makes it foolish to ignore portents um, because what's happening on earth is a microcosm of what's happening in the greater cosmos. So the passage is in act two, scene two, starting in line 27, Caesar says, what can be avoided whose end is purposed by the mighty gods? 
Yet Caesar shall go forth, for these predictions are to the world in general as to Caesar, right? It's just talking about bad things are going to happen, generally speaking. It's not specifically about me. He doesn't know what kind of story he's in. It's mm -hmm. a story that's going to be titled by him. Things happening to the world in general are the things that happen to him. He is the defining great genius in Hegel's sense of this age. And so, yes, Caesar, those things are about you. Mm -hmm. That's good. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that about the book of James. Yeah. It's that not, is so it's cool. Too much. It's super cool. I love that. I'm going to go look that up immediately. That's Thank one of those you. things about, um, by talking about it in terms of philosophical theology and sort of immutability of God and stuff, we miss that the proximate context was pagan theology. Mm, so good. Glory to God for all things. Amen. Would it be, um, it seems germane to the point that you're making that, that is there a, uh, is there a philosophical subtext going on with Brutus and Cassius and, and perhaps Caesar too? Cause doesn't Cassius talk about uh, being an Epicurean at one point? I think that I, I feel I, I should have made a more careful note about this. Maybe that, maybe this isn't the right fodder for conversation, but it does seem to come up, but Caesar seems very detached. He seems to mm -hmm. sort of be an ideal stoic. Very in that very in that line, but Cassius is kind of he does refer to his luxuries. I I'm sure you're right. I just don't know where the reference is, but I think it's towards the end. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right. He is he is the Epicurean of the play, and uh, yeah. and then yeah, he does say that. Yeah, you know that I held Epicurus strong in his opinion. Yep. 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 And then you have you have the the Stoics, right? Um, and and and. He highlights Shakespeare's highlights the inconsistencies um, and the holes within these two kind of ways of being that were very Roman, right, or at least very influential to the Romans and their Stoic virtues. Like they held so high these Stoic virtues. Um, you know, I you mentioned at the top of the podcast I'm writing a book on duty and desire, and I talk a lot about the Romans in there because the Romans have this elevation of duty. Um, mm. But it's they they have and then the Epicureans, of course, had this like, you know, idolatry of desire. Yeah. Um, but where's the unity? Right. Yeah. Um, and 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 the Romans just praised this whole idea of self-denial for the sake of the civic good. Um, piety to them was a civic virtue, not a religious one. Mm -hmm. um, and the original, you know, Roman story of the Aeneid. <laughs> uh, denies our hero Aeneas any kind of meaningful fulfillment of desire. He always has to sacrifice everything that he wants for the sake of Rome. And he's held up as this paragon um, mm -hmm. of Roman virtues. Uh, and, and, and Shakespeare kind of takes that to this extreme, particularly with Brutus, who does truly seem to want to do his duty um, and is so easily deceived as to what that duty is. Um, and and has no meaningful kind of plumb line for um, for anything that will actually nourish his soul, like a mm. long term friendship with someone he's willing to kill. <laughs> right. And yeah. his wife, right? Like his his inability to truly grieve for his wife, who he seems to love, and she's kind of awesome. Yeah. Right. Like that. There's like Brutus is so he wants to do the right thing. And he is a tragic character, but his tragedy is that he he commits this 
the worst of Christian sins mm. um, um, and has convinced himself that he's doing the right thing. And I think that has very, very relevant parallels to our political situation right now. Yeah. And the story that we tell ourselves of what we're willing to sacrifice for some kind of civic virtue that ends up being a vice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Does does the play mention why Portia dies, or how I mean she dies? I don't think it does. I think it's just Portia's dead, and the news comes that she's dead. Right. That, I, I wonder if because they were going to Brutus's house, the mob was. I wonder if she's a casualty of his choice as well. Um. No, she it, commits suicide. Oh, she burns. She? Yeah, she swallows hot coals. Oh, that's right. Hmm. Yeah, she's, uh, yeah, that burn her from the inside, right? Oh, man. Because she's an ideal Roman wife, right? There's a metaphor for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Goodness gracious. But that gets glossed over in the play. There's so many people dying right and left, right? How are you supposed to keep track? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, that's Rome for you. <laughs> That'll drive your life expectancy down. Well, have we um, maybe reached a, a, a point where we can do our end notes? Yeah, we've scratched the surface enough, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, Heidi is our esteemed guest. We'll mm. let you go first. What is your end note? Um, so this, the end note is a some some kind of work of art or something that we would point to that's based on this play. Is that right? Uh, yeah, or, or yeah. that would help readers un better understand yeah. it or something. Yeah, any, so, anything. I have a definitive one. I knew right away when, when Junius texted me about this. It's a, a movie, a film from 2012 called Caesar Must Die. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's a remarkable, like remarkable film. Um, it's an Italian film. Um, and it came out, like I said, in 2012. And it was made by these brothers, the Taviani brothers. Uh, so the film is set in a prison and it follows convicts and their rehearsals of a prison performance of Julius Caesar. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, so these, it shows them like auditioning and it tells you the stories of these convicts who are going to put on the play and they're mm. lifers, right? They're there. They are, um, they, and most of them are there because of murders um, or organized crime or drug trafficking. Um, and so they're putting on this play, which is, and, and it's, I mean, it's a real story. These are real convicts in a real prison um, in real life. And it shows the performance and then um, their rehearsals and how they do it in a prison. And this prison is just this like metaphorical Rome, right? Um, and the, the, uh, the characters, or the, excuse me, the actors just like throw themselves into this, into this performance and like find themselves, it shows them like weeping during rehearsals and negotiating with each other and their own personal relationships as they work these things out in, in performing the play. It's really, really good. Subtitled, so it takes a little bit of work to watch, you know, um, but it's worth, worth it. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's Love super it. cool. Junius, what's yours? Uh, so mine is, uh, J.M. Barry's play, Dear Brutus, um, which is, 
that that's a reference to that line the fault in our stars in our stars it's not in our stars but in ourselves um it's really and it's in many ways it's a better end note to midsummer night's dream but i don't know when we're going to do that so i'm going to use it now it is um there have been a few books that have just blown me away in the last few years and this was one of them um and it's and it's got that same you know barry shows himself to be a worthy successor of shakespeare in all the ways that heidi's talking about because it's so psychologically I mean, I, I I was I felt myself deeply convicted and weeping during it, and it's just heartbreaking moments, and um, and yet it's also funny and delightful, and so you can see both, you know, the author of Peter Pan, but also someone who is a much more serious writer there, and so um, Dear Brutus by J. M. Barry, really delightful and powerful play that I recommend. Excellent. I've never read it, and I picked up a copy when you told me you were going to be doing this on your endnote. So I haven't opened it yet, but I'm really excited to read it. So thank you. Break, break tissues. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I got really nervous, Heidi, when you said yours was a movie and that it was from 2012 because oh, no. I, I thought we maybe picked the same thing, but we didn't. I picked um, Ides of March, which was mm. a movie with George Clooney and Ryan Gosling and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and, uh, and it transposes the Shakespeare story into kind of modern American politics. I believe it's based on a stage play as well called Farragut North um, that was then adapted into a movie. But I think it's interesting because we've talked so much about the political context of the work um, and in both Caesar's day and also in Shakespeare's day. And so perhaps the Ides of March would be a good way to contextualize the story to our particular political uh, context today so cool excellent well Heidi thank you so much for joining us tonight this has been really lovely are you kidding this is so much fun thanks for including me absolutely well we will have to have you on again at some point maybe maybe sometime when your book is uh is about to come out we could have you again love yeah. that love that excellent excellent well listeners our next uh work will be Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe and so we'll see you next month in the meantime keep reading